You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, the U.S. labor market looks resilient after a strong November jobs report, but things aren't so rosy in the tech market with a wave of layoffs. We break down what this report means for the Fed and Silicon Valley at large. Plus, Elon Musk says he is releasing, quote, what really happened with the Hunter Biden story suppression by Twitter two years after Twitter changed its policies in the wake of the New York Post report. We have the latest. And Uber's CEO says the company's ready for any economic environment with no plans to cut the workforce as competitors announce layoffs and new names reveal job cuts. First, of course, we've got to take a look at how markets ended Friday. Major technology internet companies mostly lower after what was a pretty hot jobs report there. The Nasdaq 100 actually pairing most of its losses to close down four-tenths of one percent. Some underperformance in chip names. Really interesting outperformance in the U.S.-listed shares of Chinese tech companies, the Nasdaq Golden Dragon Index, closing up 5.4%, its highest level since September. The story there really around the idea we might see some easing of policy in China that would be supportive for the economy. Of course, yields were a big story on that hot jobs print, but actually the jump we saw on the 10-year yield reversed by the time we were finished on Friday afternoon. In terms of individual names, it was some of the mega caps that were hardest hit by that jobs report, leading declines on the Nasdaq 100. But along with the broader story, they too paired those those declines. The worst performer on the Nasdaq 100, Zscaler, down as much as 13% Friday. Cloud security company, it's forecast, tepid. How often has that been the story throughout this earnings season? Analysts noting that revenue and billings growth decelerating along with macro headwinds. But the story of the day, of course, jobs, jobs, and more jobs. So let's get into all of this and recap the data. A brutal week as well of layoffs across the technology industry. Here's Bloomberg's Katie Greifel. Katie, what was your read on the print we got Friday morning? 
Well, at 8.30 a.m. Eastern was a long time ago, so let's just quickly go through the numbers hit there. You had 260,000 jobs added last month, just shattering expectations. The unemployment rate stayed put at 3.7%. That is extremely low. The big thing that stuck out to me, though, was average hourly earnings. Month over month, those rose by 0.6%. That was double the estimates, and that's what really spooked markets early, particularly when it comes to wages, because it's not great news for a Federal Reserve just trying its darndest to cool price pressures without having to break the economy in the process. With that in mind, I mean, you saw a lot of movement early, a big drop in the S&P 500, in the NASDAQ 100. Stocks did claw back a lot of those losses, but like you pointed out, you look at the NASDAQ 100, still finished down about four-tenths of a percent because, Ed, I don't need to tell you that higher rates typically aren't good for the kind of growth tech names that populate that index. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I sit here in this chair and people say to me, Ed, this is a technology show. Why are you so focused on the Fed? It's always about the Fed, right? I guess, you know, the outlook for rates is unclear at the best of times. What do we learn from that market reaction about what we might see from the Fed this month and going forward? Well, Ed, you and I speak the same language. It's all about the Fed. And in terms of what the Fed might do at this month's meeting, I mean, we heard from Jerome Powell on Wednesday saying that they could moderate the pace of rate hikes this month. It seems like that is what markets are sticking with because you didn't really see bets change on a 50 basis point move for this month versus 75 basis points. You did see wagers on how high the terminal rate, the end destination for the Federal Reserve, that did nudge up a little bit, but that's also in line with what we heard from Powell on Wednesday, that that could be higher than their previous forecast, which we got back in September. All right, Katie Greifeld, happy Friday. Get out of there. Enjoy your weekend. But we will continue the conversation and bring in John Lear, chief economist for Decision Intelligence Company Morning Consult, for his read on it. John, welcome to the show. Data, hot print for jobs. Friday, what's your interpretation? Yeah, thanks for having me. I mean, I think the headline number is that things didn't sort of move from the tech sector into the broader economy. They remain relatively contained. Um, But the 12-month trend is pretty clear at this point. We are seeing a slowing rate of jobs growth, probably not quite as slow as the Fed would like. But, um, you know, I think going forward, there's some room for near-term optimism, in particular because these tech layoffs have yet to trickle over and affect the broader economy. I think it's hard to make sense of a lot of this, right? The data is incongruous with with, with the different data points that we're getting every single day. How is it that we're seeing very rapid announcements of layoffs? So I'm thinking, of course, of the Challenger Gray data. Those are announcements of layoffs in the tech industry. And yet, if you take a step back and look at the broader picture for the US economy, we see a resilient labor market. Where is the disconnect here? Yeah, I, I don't see a disconnect. I mean, we, we track uh, the share of tech workers who lost payer income every week, and we've seen that pretty consistently tick down over the course of November. In any of our high-frequency unemployment data, we don't see dramatic increases in the tech sector. I think what's the, you know, the difference is that um, these folks who are being laid off are essentially finding jobs very quickly, either in the tech sector or in some other uh, sector that requires those type of skills. Those skills are really in demand. We still have an imbalance in the economy between supply and demand. Um, and that that sort of limited supply right now is going to allow companies that are underperforming for those workers to be reabsorbed very quickly. 
there's an interesting point of personal finance. Like a lot of people that watch this show work in the technology industry, and over the course of the pandemic, they worked at companies that retained staff, paid bonuses, helped to offset some of the economic hardship. Do you think it's fair to say that those workers from the technology sector, that even if they're being laid off, they have a buffer that they of personal finance cash in the bank that they've built from the pandemic era? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's what all of our research shows, that higher income, higher educated workers who have been employed over the course of the pandemic have stashed away enough savings essentially to last uh, at least three months without working um, after losing their job. And so I think that's really the security that I have when I think about how might these tech layoffs affect the broader macro economy. We're not seeing it in terms of broader layoffs. And I don't think we'll see it in terms of a deterioration in spending or consumer credit conditions. Hey, John, I want to go back really quick to that Challenger Gray data. 82,000 or so job cuts announced by the tech sector year to date, but 53,000 of them in the month of November alone. Do you expect that trend to continue through the end of this year and into the, in next year, or is the worst of it over? You know, it's hard to say exactly. I think what is certainly going to be the case going forward is that you're going to hear about more layoffs in general because we're entering a period, an economic environment where, you know, businesses operating conditions are going to be challenged and you're going to start to see certain companies win and certain companies lose. When you've got a rising tide essentially driven by very low interest rates, uh, high corporate profits, it's easy essentially for companies to hide some of their underperformance. When you move into the operating environment where we are currently, that's going to be exposed. And I think that's why you're going to see some of this churn in the labor market. Well, it's certainly one to watch. You know, we reflected on the screen just then the data that a lot of these cuts coming out here on the West Coast, and that's kind of correlating with the industries that are here. John Lear, Chief Economist at Morning Consult. Thank you for joining us. All right. Stick with us because... Bloomberg talked to Brooke Jenkins, San Francisco's new DA, about her vision for the city and the future of tech in the Bay Area. She was appointed after her predecessor was recalled. For context, this is the first time a serving DA has been recalled in San Francisco's history. Here's what she had to say about the work her office will do in fighting crime in this city and how it's going to impact the economy. I've said, and I've made it very clear, all crime is illegal again in San Francisco. There will be some level of consequence for the people who commit those crimes so that we can protect that economic engine. That, those, these retailers, these businesses, they provide jobs, jobs that our residents need in order to support their families. We can't sit by and allow businesses to feel the need to move to other states because crime is too much of a problem, not only for their business um, bottom line, but also for their workers who need to be able to come safely to work. And so I'm committed to making sure that we protect those jobs and these businesses because that is what we need in order to remain the beautiful city that we are. Coming up, we'll discuss the latest news out of Twitter and the future of content moderation on the platform. That's next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. 
That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Here's what's been going viral today. Even on Elon Musk's Twitter, there are red lines for permissible content. And Kanye West, or now known as Ye, who calls himself Ye, crossed one of them with a late Thursday night post that prompted the platform to suspend his account. And all of this comes as we're awaiting, patiently, some news from Elon Musk regarding Hunter Biden. It's a lot to digest. Let's bring in Bloomberg Sarah Farah, who leads our coverage of big tech here at Bloomberg. Sarah, this is pretty confusing, but let's start with the news of the day, I suppose, so far. An action by Elon Musk that Ye, formerly known as Kanye West, went too far. Give us the details. Well, he posted a swastika, and Elon Musk, who had previously seemed to embrace him, even though he's a controversial figure, they they have had a history of of you know semi friendship, um, and then he said, "Listen, you've gone too far. This isn't love," he said, and, and he he suspended Yay, um, and I think I think that was. Um, it's certainly shocking for everyone who's been a, a fan of Ye, even though we've, we've heard these reports of his anti-Semitic um, comments in the past. But I also think that some of Elon Musk's supporters who thought, well, you're building this version of Twitter where anything goes, where it's a, a free speech absolutist environment, uh, were a little you know, surprised that, that he did end up taking action with Ye's post as opposed to saying, you know, anything goes here on, on this new version of Twitter. BuzzFeed reported and shared an image of a screenshot from Ye's account where it appeared to show that the suspension was only for 12 hours. Bloomberg's not verified that. We don't know. But, but I thought that was interesting. The other thing we're waiting for is the launch of this new verification system, Twitter Blue, color codes for different entities and individuals. We don't think it's happened quite yet, but it could happen. It, you know, verification is so complicated, right? Because it it is only something that has been available to a select few public officials, celebrities, journalists, sports figures on the internet who are at risk of impersonation. And what Musk is trying to do with Twitter Blue is let anyone pay for it. And 
in the process, maybe those people will end up impersonating these brands that we, it, it just, had, the first time they launched it, it was a total mess because we saw all these major brands from Eli Lilly to, to Nintendo be impersonated and lose value. And we saw advertisers pull their, pull their right. spend. So I'm not surprised that it's delayed. It's, it's a tough thing to get right. And, um, you know, a, a hard problem to, to just come at, come at this and say anyone can have a blue check as long as they pay $8. Bloomberg Sarah Fry, stay with us uh, just for a minute. Let's carry on the conversation, though, and bring in Claire Diaz-Ortiz. She was formerly Twitter's head of corporate social innovation and philanthropy, 2009 to 2014, currently VC scout for Kleiner Perkins in Latin America. You also wrote a book about Twitter, Twitter for Good. Um, no, let's start. Well, let's start. let's start on this issue of the day. The, the decision to suspend Ye's account. Uh, Musk does appear to have red lines. You know the Twitter platform. You were there for many years, although it's been eight years since you left the company. What is your read on content moderation and policy decisions so far to this point? So I think it's really important to reframe kind of the language we use a little bit. We hear a lot of people talking about content moderation, and I understand that is sort of what we call it, but that really sits within trust and safety. And safety is really important. And the connection between free speech and safety is what Elon does not seem to understand. Uh, you know, I kind of sometimes say, you know, watching Elon build in public is kind of a mess because he really doesn't know what he's doing, right? He's going back to what we thought social media was 15 years ago and using a lot of that language and a lot of those guidelines. But we've now seen, you know, those of us who've worked at these companies, who've been on these trust and safety teams, who've written books about social media, we know that those things don't work, right? In the early days of Twitter, of social media in general, we simply didn't understand that we were creating information silos, that we were a fertile breeding ground for misinformation, and we really didn't understand that certain people were more persecuted than others. When you talk about that, I mean, it, it is a problem that seems easier to solve from the outside, right? You, why, why won't we just let everyone say whatever they want to say? Well, because then it creates a, a terrible user experience. I mean, as you see Musk sort of rediscover all the things that you had discovered when you were at Twitter, you know, what has been surprising to you so far? I, I'll tell you, I was surprised today by him um, c categorizing harassment as spam. I thought that that was, that was an interesting um, new way of thinking about harassment that maybe actually is, is positive. What, what, what do you think is, is you know, becoming a real to him now in a way that maybe it wasn't before? Well, I mean, some of these things are coming real to him, right? Like he's starting to understand, okay, harassment might actually be a problem in a way I didn't understand it because I am the richest man in the world and I am a white bro who hasn't had concerns about trust and safety in a long time in my life, right? So some of these things, maybe he's slowly starting to see sort of the light or gain some empathy on, but ultimately it's way too slow and it's not happening. So it's just very concerning for users out there who want to actually use the platform. And for advertisers who want to use it. I think I'm right in saying uh, many years ago, then known as Kanye West, now known as Ye, walked into the building and sent his yeah. first tweet while you were there. Can you give us the details of, around that and what happened? Yeah, I remember in the summer of 2010 in California, Kanye came in one day, lit up a blunt, and then sent his first tweet. And the first tweet, if you go back and look at it, is, is him spelling Silicon Valley wrong and then following it up with a joke about women's breast implants. Okay, 
we'll move on from that subject of, of yay, generally speaking. You, you have focused your writing and your time at Twitter on, on the platform as a mechanism for social good. And Musk talks about Twitter being the global town square. And he has shared data in recent days about the growth of the platform, but also the, the decline of what, or what p- appears to be the decline of hate speech. Are there any areas you actually agree with Musk on, things that he's done, things that he's said about the potential for the platform? So I do, I mean, if there's one thing I won't begrudge Elon Musk, it, it, it is that he really should be redoing the verification platform and it's good to see him try, although he's failing a lot in doing things we did 10 or 15 years ago. Verification, since it started in 2009, when you know a baseball manager was impersonated on Twitter and then sued Twitter as a result, has always been a dumpster fire and it's always been very complicated. And from the beginning, there were not enough staff to handle it. You know, I was one of many people people tasked with sort of working out some of the guidelines, and it's never really worked. So in principle, the idea that people could pay to be verified is actually something I think could be a good idea. It may not be something I would pay for. It may not be something you would pay for, but it is something that many people out there would pay for, and it certainly will ideally reduce the demand, right? Anyone who's ever worked at Twitter, 10 years later, they're still getting DMs in their in their Twitter feed, people asking to be verified, right? So there's a huge demand for it that he can ultimately hopefully capture some of by charging for. Unfortunately, when he launched Twitter Blue last month, for the $8.799 monthly fee, he ran into his own problem of content moderation and spam bots just going crazy with the service. What do you think about his own content? The, the, the way that he's been posting on Twitter in this, in this really showman, showman-like manner where every few hours there's another bombshell, even today, that, you know, this, this teasing of a, a big drop of a, a story that's about to come. I mean, this is, this is the way that he's been running it and, and perhaps is leading to these higher user numbers or signups that, that we're seeing um, or that he's talking about. Is that a sustainable way to run Twitter? Is that something that, um, you know, even if it leads to user growth, would be uh, something you would recommend doing long term? It's absolutely not sustainable, obviously, from the side of user growth, but also from the side of advertisers. You know, more than half his advertising budget has dropped since the advertisers are all pulling out. I mean, I think it's important to understand what he's doing today on Twitter with this proposed live chat thing he's supposed to be going live with right now is really an example of the way he behaves. Um, You know, the last time I was on, I compared him to some of my twin children who don't have prefrontal cortexes, and I feel like he's sort of the same way. But I mean, what he's doing today is he's trying to get back at the Twitter security and Twitter safety and trust head who was just kicked out. And so this is sort of a revenge thing he's doing. Um, Yoel Roth went on Kara Swisher's podcast and basically discussed what had happened during the Hunter Biden laptop tweet censoring back in the fall of 2020. And so, I mean, now he's just coming out because Roth has now quit and now he's going to go against him. It's, it's horrible. 
Okay, that was the take from Claire Diaz-Ortiz, formerly Twitter's head of corporate social innovation and philanthropy. I'd add you did leave Twitter eight years ago and that was your opinion. But, you know, many people see Elon Musk as in the end improving the companies that he works on. It's a wait and see when it comes to Twitter. Also, Bloomberg's Sarah Fryer, who leads big tech coverage here. Thank you both. Time for Talking Tech and a look at what's going on in the world of venture capital and startups, starting with the Asia crypto exchange Zipmex. It's about to get acquired by a VC fund for about $100 billion. $30 million will be in cash, but the remainder will be in crypto tokens. This is one of the first rescues in Asia since a wave of defaults ripped through the sector. And more layoffs. Light Street Capital Management just dismissed some staff focused on bets in private markets. This comes after a steep drop in the hedge fund's tech-heavy portfolio. That's according to sources. The firm already shut down its San Francisco office a few months ago. Finally, the defense tech startup Anderil has raised about $1.5 billion in a new round, as reported by the Financial Times. The investment values the firm at $7 billion, up from $4.2 billion 18 months ago. Anderil's founder, Palmer Lucky, plans to use the new funds to build a large defense company using new tech like AI and drones. I think this is one of the most uncertain environments I've been a part of. You know, we it's very difficult to tell where things are going to wind up. I think Europe is certainly going to be uh, weaker and is likely headed into a recession. We're preparing for that. In the U.S., it's unclear. A recession might happen. It might be a soft landing, etc. So I think from our standpoint, we want to be prepared for any eventuality. Uh, when you look at our marketplace, we are a marketplace business, so we don't have significant fixed costs. Uh, in a weaker labor environment, our supply position will tend to get better. Uh, we will be a place where more drivers can come to uh, earn real money on. This last quarter, for example, uh, earners earn more than $10 billion on our platform, up over 25%. So we do think that our marketplace gets more attractive to drivers. As it gets more attractive to drivers, prices come down and that in turn attracts riders as well. Uh, so we think the business model is a good model that can you know, do well in, uh, in strong economies and can perform in weaker economies. And I think as a company and as a technology company, we have been relatively forward thinking in making sure that we prepare ourselves for an uncertain world, making sure we're conservative in terms of the investments that we're making and an investment isn't paying off, pull back, pull your money where the growth is, and I think it's showing in the results. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. That was Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi last month when asked about the impact of a potential recession. And now, while DoorDash and Lyft slash their staff to reduce costs, Uber says it's not making any cutbacks, at least from a headcount perspective. Khosrowshahi said this week that the company is in a good place and a shift in consumer spending from retail to services is helping. Bloomberg's Jackie Davalos covers all of the ride-hailing and delivery companies companies for us. She's out in D.C. Run us through what Dara had to say in the last couple of days, because it's certainly not what we're hearing from the rest of the sector. 
Absolutely. Uber seems to be one of the rare safe zones right now in Silicon Valley. And the reason for that is because people are still ordering marked up burritos and taking rides to work. And what that really shows is that their customer demand is is keeping them afloat. They've already gone through a lot of the difficult decisions to cost cut that a lot of companies are having to do now more under the gun of you know the specter of an economic recession looming. Um, but Dor- uh, Uber actually did that. Um, earlier on in the pandemic, if you remember, they had a really tough time, cut around 6,000 jobs in the course of just a few months. So I think the cost-cutting measures, um, they largely got ahead of it and now are relying on that strong customer demand to kind of see them through for, for now at least. I want to bring up on the screen some of the things that Dara Khosrowshahi was saying at that event in New York, because I find it really interesting. It's it's bullish talk. It's fighting talk. But at the same time, Jackie, I think I'm right in saying that Uber, you know, are being financially disciplined. There is an element of belt tightening and being conservative when it comes to hiring. Totally. And look, I think when it comes to telegraphing uh, what the potential for layoffs might be, he is still taking somewhat of a a pragmatic approach. Just in the clip that you played uh, right before this, you know, he has said earlier this year that he's going to slow hiring, which is something that DoorDash wasn't considering, Um, you know, back when companies really started, you know, thinking about uh, putting a pause on on hiring and, you know, eliminating parts of their workforce. Um, So he was a little bit more um, cautious even earlier this year. Now, when you take a look at DoorDash, Tony Hsu, their CEO, was very forthcoming when it came to, you know, taking accountability for growing too quickly. Um, In Southeast Asia, you know, Carousel laid off uh, or plans to lay off 10% of their staff and their CEO as well said, you know, we grew too quickly. So I think Uber's uh, move here, um, it really shows that, you know, they have been kind of slowing down on the hiring front, but there's other ways to cut costs. I mean, you know, they hived off their autonomous vehicle research um, and are now really doubling down on on food delivery, which is shown to be pretty profitable for them. You're right that there's some nuance in it, right? The headlines this week have been layoffs, job cuts. You know, in Europe, for example, Intel is moving to cut more jobs. Um, HP last week, 6,000 jobs up to 6,000 jobs cut over the next three years or so. I thought the nuance in your story about DoorDash was important because even coming out of the pandemic, this is a pandemic darling that's continued to grow. Um, and, in, you know, the, the risk, it seems to me, is that DoorDash sees its operating expenses just simply outpacing its growth on the revenue front, on the gross booking fronts. Is that the, the equation that Tony Zhu's thinking about? Exactly. And it's because the market environment and investors' focus has really shifted. And now it's less about growth and it's more about the bottom line. And that's why you're seeing uh, executives take that tone in earnings calls. They're focused on free cash flow. They're focused on um, their net income. You know, you see a lot of these e-commerce companies pointing investors to adjusted earnings figures, which strip out a lot of the stock-based compensation. And that's what's been moving up. Um, these costs, you see, when you saw Lyft cut 13% of its workforce, it also mentioned um, that it was going to 
shift its strategy when it came to hiring, looking more to Canada and Eastern Europe, which you know they don't have stock-based comp in their uh, in their packages the way they do here in the U.S. So different strategies there, um, but it it really does show that the focus is much more on profitability. And DoorDash is a great example of that. Um, their customer demand also super strong, but I think they're preparing for um, a much rockier period ahead. Okay. Layoffs, never a pleasant subject to cover in this industry, whether it's here in San Francisco or out on the East Coast. Bloomberg's Jackie Davalos, thank you for your reporting. Meanwhile, the November job struck a very different picture from what's playing out here in Silicon Valley in the tech sector. This has been the story of the week, what we've been discussing on the show. The market now expecting the Fed to push rates higher and... The possibility of a recession is now a much realer risk. Joining us to discuss what's going on with jobs in the tech sector, what the sentiment of tech workers is, is Cara Brennan-Alamno, Chief People Officer at Latisse, a software management platform for fast-growing businesses in the US and UK. So, you've been crunching some numbers, Cara. I, I, I mean, there's a human side to this story, and then there's the workforce side to this story. Um, let's start with the workforce side. You know, what is your interpretation of what we're seeing across the technology sector from a job cuts perspective? Well, what's interesting is is what you've been talking about um, in in the past half an hour is that the headlines are interesting, they're eye catching, but really the devil's in the details uh, when you go down a few layers in terms of what's happening with the layoffs. Fundamentally, what we know, and and when I'm talking to the other CHROs that are actually executing these layoffs at places like Meta and DoorDash. The actual makeup of the folks and the teams that are being uh, affected tend to be more of your front um, frontline support, your recruiters, your HR folks, folks that were here during the pandemic to really help shore up a level of morale and this this momentum toward growth. And as we're looking toward next year, we have a lot of people. Um, on the VC side, a lot of financial leadership, a lot of CEOs saying, going into the future, we need to be more conservative. I want to send a message around efficiency and effectiveness. And our priority will be profitability in the next two years. And this is the start of the action around those sentiments. Is it part of this as well, people just looking for something new, new jobs? I know that companies are taking that decision out of hands. But there is an element as well that within the tech sector, there's opportunities. People are hiring and they're looking to do something new. Yeah, definitely. I think what some folks are missing is that we, Lattice did a, a survey a few months ago and we found that 25% of employees weren't convinced that their company was going to grow in the next 12 months. And half of, the, half of the employees that are in seat don't know if they're going to be able to grow in their careers. So those are the bigger questions that people are leading with when they're making decisions. And leaders are, are thinking about that. They're thinking about, I have employees that potentially could have quite quit in the last year. I want to look back into my org and understand really where people's heads are and drive forward a level of productivity and performance as we go into this potential bear, bear environment in the next 12 months. Do you have any read on the attitude towards 
at home hybrid working models or just simply being in the office? Yeah, what, what we also know from some of our research is 34% of tech workers are saying that they would not stay at their job if they could not be in a hybrid or remote first work environment. We're definitely seeing that play out. Um, in technology companies, a CHRO often owns the real estate or facilities component. And I can tell you, talking amongst my colleagues, um, we've already planned for not renewing leases, for reducing our real estate footprint. So for us, the debate is over. The, the plans right. are in place. The strategy is moving forward. And I still see headlines where people are saying folks are battling it out. We're not because we know that in order to get the talent that we need to run our businesses, we have to be providing that flexibility. Okay, Lattice Chief People Officer Cara Brennan-Alamano, thank you. Now let's head over to Stamford where Bloomberg spoke Thursday with the CEO of General Motors, Mary Barra. She talked about whether the company thinks it will be able to sell 1 million EVs in 2025. Here's what she had to say. We made that statement and that um, set that goal for ourselves uh, that we'll have the capacity to be able to sell a million units in North America and frankly in China by 2025. And we think with the strong product portfolio we're going to have at different price points, you know, from from the Cadillac Lyric to the um, the Hummer, the uh, Chevy Silverado, the GMC Sierra, down to a, a Chevy Equinox and a Chevy Blazer, we're going to have the products uh, across the market that are going to allow us to, to achieve that metric. So we think we've got the right plan. Uh, this was all in place before the incentive uh, package came as a part of IRA, but we're, you know, we think that will help. And it's doing what it was supposed to, we think it was intended to do, was to drive EV adoption. And, you know, we've invested a lot in the United States creating jobs, which I think is going to create a stronger economy. So I think it's going to accomplish the objectives and it, you know, happened to uh, be very aligned with the plan we were already executing. That was Mary Barris, CEO of General Motors. Coming up, the former chair of the FDIC on the need for crypto regulation as US authorities ramp up their investigation of FTX. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, 
top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The reality is, like Sam and his cohorts perpetuated a fraud. They used customer money to make bets that he poorly risk managed after he made them. Uh, like, let's forget about the risk management. The problem was he took our money. And so he needs to get prosecuted. Uh, the authorities need to dig in and figure out exactly what happened. People will go to jail and should go to jail. We've taken our exchange balances down as a precaution. We've gone through each exchange, talked to the guys that run them, look at the auditing, uh, look at proof of reserves, and we make our best bet, right? When you were putting money on an exchange, you never expected it to be all at risk, right? Exchanges put a lot of your coins in cold storage, uh, and then the rest was left on exchange. So you really thought you only had risk of hacking. Uh, very few people thought risk of somebody stealing your money. And that's a new risk that people are going to have to look at a lot, a lot closer. That was Galaxy Digital's Mike Novogratz, his opinion. We should note that no formal charges have been filed against Sam Bankman-Fried, but U.S. authorities have stepped up their investigation into his collapsed crypto exchange, FTX. They're asking investors and trading firms that worked closely with FTX to hand over information on the company and its key figures, among them Bankman-Fried and the former head of his Alameda research investment arm, Caroline Ellison. Bloomberg spoke with Sheila Baer, former FDIC chair and senior fellow at the Center for Financial Stability about how we regulate crypto. The current regulatory powers are adequate for the vast majority of this market. And I would tend to agree with Gary Gensler that most of these tokens are securities. Um, there is a bit of a gap with the CFTC's jurisdiction. They they have regulatory power over derivatives, but the cash market, the actual crypto asset itself, they only have enforcement authority. So that is that is a gap that could be fulfilled, but that's a very, very small part of the market. Most of these tokens, most of these assets, especially the problematic ones, I think appropriately follow under the fall under the SEC's jurisdiction. And the SEC, frankly, just needs to go after them more aggressively. Sheila, what about the controls that were in place for banks carrying out fiat transactions on behalf of cryptocurrency companies yeah. like FTX? Do you think that yeah. they were sufficient, given your experience, of course, as, as a banking regulator? So I think that the exposure to the regulated FDIC-insured banks was, was very, very limited. Obviously, they had bank accounts. Everybody needs a, a bank account to do, you know, your, your, your regular uh, transactions, payment transactions. But it does not appear that there was any significant exposure. There's been a lot of press coverage about uh, FTX or maybe it's Alameda taking a, a significant investment interest in a small bank in Washington State called Moonstone. They renamed it Moonstone. But as far as I can tell, that they hadn't really used the bank for anything. So... I don't. It just looks like to the extent they were using banks, it was for bread and butter payments. I don't think this infects the banking system uh, at all. Um, and uh, so that that's the good news, uh, that it, 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 it does not really have any kind of impact on mainstream banking or the insured banks that we all rely on for our own, you know, checking and savings accounts. But the banks that did work with FTX and Alameda, do you think that it was a mistake for them to bring FTX onto yeah, their platform? Yeah, you know, that is... That is a really tough question because there's been a big controversy generally about whether regulators should, you know, tell banks you just can't do business with certain 
entities, you know, certain markets or certain, you know, and it, that's hard to do. I think if a business is legal, then to tell a bank not to do, not to have dealings with them, I think is hard. And I am unaware that any of the entities doing business with U.S. banks were were illegal. So I think it's hard. It's, it's, it's a very controversial issue to try to use banks to shut, insured banks to shut all of this down. That was former FDIC chair Sheila Bear. Meanwhile, the lawyer who represented Bernie Madoff has this advice for Sam Bankman-Fried. Zip it. Ira Sorkin was lead defense lawyer for Madoff, seen here, who was the mastermind of one of the greatest Ponzi schemes of all time. Sorkin says SBF is digging himself into a hole with his media apology tour. Sorkin says Bankman-Fried should listen to his lawyers and stop talking immediately. Representatives for Bankman-Fried and FTX didn't immediately respond to a request for comment on this story. Welcome to Swiftonomics. That's what happens when a post-COVID demand shock causes ticket sales to go up to $40,000. Many Taylor Swift fans were very disappointed when they couldn't get their hands on tickets back in November. The demand was so high that it caused Ticketmaster's system to fail and it raised all sorts of questions about the platform's monopoly. But there's more here. Swifties, or fans of Taylor Swift, represent a particular moment in the global economy. They are the supercharged consumer that's willing to spend a lot of money on experiences that they missed out on during the pandemic. Many in this category are Gen Zs or Millennials who come out of the pandemic with historically high levels of savings. They've waited for four years to see their favorite pop star and they don't mind splurging 10 months worth of savings to see her. It's all because of you. Thank you so, so much. In the early 2000s, economist Alan Kruger came up with a concept called Rockonomics. He uses it to explain the global economy through the lens of the music industry. He often talks about Taylor Swift as somebody who's very cleverly playing with strategies to boost ticket sales. I think Taylor Swift is an economic genius. But the bigger question of how much longer consumers are going to spend this much money in an economy of highly alarming interest rates is something that Swiftonomics can't answer. For now, economists are going to have to shake it off. Our thanks to Madis Kabash for that one. Some other stories we're following in entertainment. Amazon's top media executive is stepping down as the company begins a restructuring. Jeff Blackburn is retiring at the end of 2022 after 24 years at Amazon, according to a memo sent to staff today. Blackburn helped the company pivot into streaming and led the charge on the MGM acquisition, as well as the billion-dollar Lord of the Rings series. Amazon has been in cost-cutting mode due to a sales slowdown. And Meta is urging policymakers to wait before new rules governing the metaverse. A policy paper released by Meta argues that many of the world's existing laws and regs will also apply to activity in the metaverse. Regulators could stymie innovation if they act too quickly, according to the paper. Well, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Don't forget to check out our podcast. You can find it on the terminal as well as online on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? 
And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.